A very good morning to you all on this, the 15th of January. Uh, welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church, and, uh, and let's, let's be praising the Lord this morning. Our preacher this morning is our own pastor, uh, Duncan, uh, and he'll be preaching, as it says on the front cover of your diary, preach, suffer, repeat. Well, maybe that's a bit more cryptic than, um, I'm sure it's a bit more cryptic than, than Duncan will explain. Um, but yes, we're focusing, uh, continuing our series in Acts, and uh, this morning Duncan will be focusing on the pattern of gospel ministry, which is preaching and suffering and repeating that, um, that the word is central, that there is an inevitability in opposition, but there is also the joy of seeing people saved. We're going to read from God's Word now, um, and uh, Sharon is going to do that, um, reading from Acts 17. Um. Acts 17, verse 1 to 15, and I'm reading from the ESV. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I'd just like to pray briefly before Duncan comes and um, speaks to us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful morning. I thank you for the privilege of coming together to worship you, to hear your word. You know all of us here. You know the things that are going on in our life. And we particularly want to remember Amy, Joe, and Duncan this week as they um, look forward to the safe arrival of their new baby. Lord, help us now to turn from all that and to turn to you and focus on your word 
And as we sang previously, that we will uh, see you, Christ, and we will hear from you and what we have to say. Please be with Duncan now as he comes to speak to us. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And I trust you'll find it helpful to have Acts chapter 17 open in front of you again. It is printed in the diary, and you can follow us there. Um, I think in general... Uh, Before you try something new, you want to know what to expect. Um, Let me give you an example. In in, in 2007, there was a a, a film adaptation of the story of Sweeney Todd, starred Johnny Depp. I haven't seen it, but I know that there was a significant percentage of people walked out in the middle of that film. Not because it was too scary, not because it was too gory, but because in none of the advertising for the film had they made it clear that it was a musical. I mean, can you think of anything worse? (laughs) Having a musical unexpectedly foisted upon you. Folks' expectations were a mile away from the reality. Or it can be visiting a new church to preach. It really does help if they tell you in advance that they expect you to give a children's talk. Knowing what to expect helps you to prepare and to endure what's coming. And that is a part of the purpose behind the book of Acts that we're reading. It is the story of the early years of the church. After Jesus has been raised and ascended into heaven, his mission continues, and it continues through his followers through the church. And in this part of the book of Acts, the mission to bring the message of Jesus to the world is in full swing. This is the the European leg of Paul and Silas's mission. Last week, we saw them in the Greek city of Philippi. Their time up there, they then traveled on throughout Greece and Macedonia. They headed south and west, 30-odd miles. They walked to Amphipolis, and then another 30 miles to Apollonia, then another 30-odd miles to Thessalonica, and Thessalonica was the major city in the region. And the verses that Sharon read for us, they bring our focus to their visit to two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And in doing that, we're able to see, I hope, a pattern of ministry they help us to have right expectations of what gospel ministry will look like. And in fact, if we're going to be part of Christ's ongoing mission, then it's as if the book of Acts is saying to us, here's what you must expect. Preach, suffer, repeat. Preach, suffer, repeat. Paul and his team had a deliberate approach. Uh, We're told that in verse 2, that it was Paul's custom, is how it's put there, in a new town to start off in the synagogue. The synagogue was where Jews congregated on the Sabbath day. And we're told that on three Sabbaths, that is three Saturdays, Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue from the Scriptures. And simply describing it like that tells us a lot. The scriptures here 
refers to the Jewish Bible, our Old Testament. And so we're seeing that there is a continuity between the Old Testament and Jesus. There was no embarrassment on the part of these missionaries to open up their Jewish Bible and to say, here is Jesus. And this is why Paul always started in the synagogues, because a Jewish audience, in theory, had a head start on understanding the message they proclaimed about Jesus, because the Jews knew the promises of the Old Testament. And in fact, Jesus was a Jew who first came to Jews, even though so many failed to recognize him. But here's the bit I want us to take notice of. We learn from the pattern of this ministry that the church's mission is proclaiming the Bible's message. The church's mission is proclaiming the Bible's message. And I say that because the Scriptures are central to the work of the mission in these two cities. This is what they point people to in Thessalonica. And in Berea, it's this issue. It's the issue of the Scriptures that the Jews in Berea engage with Paul. That's down in verse 11. So, what, what about the Scriptures is necessary here? What is it that's necessary? Well, let's see what Paul wants people to understand from the Scriptures. In verse 3, what's he doing? He's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. The Christ, or the Messiah, was the Jewish hope. Even if you went all the way back to the day that Adam and Eve sinned and fell away from God, on that day God gave them a promise that from their offspring a rescuer, a Messiah, would come, one who would crush the serpent's head and free human beings from the tyranny of the devil forever. And Jews in the first century where um, these things take place in Acts 17, they could easily see how much they needed a rescuer. They had fallen from their once proud status as an independent and prosperous nation, and in fact were here in Greece or Macedonia, where Jews have been scattered away from the promised land. And they were looking for the Christ to come and put everything right. But it was because they had a limited understanding of what was wrong in the world that they had a limited understanding of the sort of Messiah who would come into the world. And so there were parts of the Scripture that they really liked, bold things that were said about the Messiah. In Psalm 2, God promises His anointed one that He will make the nations His heritage, and all those who oppose Him will be crushed with a, with a rod of iron. God promised David that David would have a descendant who would, for whom God would establish the throne of His kingdom forever. This is what Messiah would come and do. And when Messiah comes, it will be to set things right. Here's how Isaiah puts it. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Everything will be put right 
Messiah will come and He will rule perfectly and forever. They were looking for a powerful and a mighty king. But Paul opens up their Scriptures to them because he wants them to see that, yes, this is what Messiah will accomplish. But the means by which He will accomplish it is something you have completely overlooked. No, Paul says to them, the Scriptures teach that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. If He's going to establish this everlasting kingdom, if He's going to bring His people into that kingdom, then He must suffer and rise again. And that actually goes all the way back to where we started when we thought about this message of the Scriptures. When God gave the promise of a rescuer to Adam and Eve, He also described how that promise would be fulfilled that the rescuer would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. The devil will be destroyed by Messiah, but through the suffering of Messiah. And surely, as Paul opened up the Scriptures, he would have turned again to the prophecy of Isaiah, which says these kind of things in chapter 53, speaking of the servant that God would raise up. He was despised and rejected by men. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. A very different picture, isn't it? from the one of the king who will, who will reign in power and dash all his enemies to pieces. Now, here is this message that stands alongside it in the Scriptures that says, yes, this rescuer will come to do all of that, and yet he is the one who must suffer. And as we read those words from Isaiah 53, more than just suffering, he describes the rescuer suffering in our place. And right there is the great wrong that we need the Christ to put right. Right there is the great barrier that exists between God and us. To borrow that language, it's our transgressions, it's our iniquities. We're sinners. And what could ever break down that barrier? I mean, even supposing today that we could make a vow never to do anything again that makes me more important than God. I will only ever do the things that will be honoring to God. Imagine we could make that vow right now and keep it. That would be wonderful. But what about all of our history? I mean, we've all got a history, right? What about all of that pileup of sin and transgression and iniquity that we've already committed? What happens to that? How does that get dealt with? Well, the Scriptures say, He was wounded for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The rescuer must suffer and die Because if our sins are ever to be removed, 
he must suffer and die in our place. He bears what we deserve. This is how sin is dealt with. This is how the greatest wrong in the world is put right. But Paul explained and he proved that the Messiah must also be raised from the dead. And I suppose there's a sense in which there's a logic to that, isn't there? After all, how can a dead Messiah establish an everlasting kingdom? But Paul brought these Thessalonians more than logic. He brought them the Scriptures. Psalm 16 expresses the confidence of God's anointed before God when he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to the place of the dead, nor let your Holy One see corruption. And so, I wonder if you can picture what what Paul does in the synagogue on that day and on those three Saturdays. It's as if he goes in there and he says, the Messiah that you're looking for, look at what your Scriptures say about Him. He must suffer and rise from the dead. And I have news for you. He has come. He has come. This Jesus whom I met on the road to Damascus, this Jesus who we're proclaiming in the city, He is the Christ you've been waiting for. Can't you see? This Jesus who suffered and died, He rose again from the dead. He is the promised rescuer. Believe in Him. Stop trusting in yourself to be right with God. Look to the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who fulfills everything that the Scriptures promised. That's what He went into the synagogue and proclaimed. Now, here's what I want us to get to. I want us to see that without the Scriptures… Paul has no case. Without the Scriptures, Paul has no message. And I want us to grasp today that as we sit here today, we are more privileged than the Apostle Paul. We have the New Testament. We have the the record that God has given to us of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and of the mission to build His church written by the eyewitnesses. And it's through pointing people to the Scriptures that lives are changed. That stands out really as the, the big contrast between the response to the mission in Thessalonica and the response to the mission in Berea. It's how they responded to the Scriptures that separates them. We're shown that in verse um, 11, where Luke tells us that the reason that the Berean Jews were more noble than the Thessalonians is because of what? They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That phrase, more noble, it carries with it the idea of being, they were open-minded. They had an open-mindedness that could say, well, if this is what the Scriptures say, then we need to look and see that for ourselves. We need to be sure, so let's let's look at the Scriptures and see. They don't just take Paul's word for it. 
They consider what the Scriptures say, and they apply themselves. You see how how Luke says there that they daily were searching the Scriptures to see if these things were so? And that makes sense, because, well, what could be more important than understanding God's rescue plan for sinners? And this is the opportunity that lies in front of every one of us today. Actually, it lies in front of us more readily than it did for these Jews in Berea. You can be sure that these Jews did not own their own Bible. They would have to read the scroll in the synagogue. We live in a world where publishing is such that actually probably most of the Christians in this room have more than five Bibles in their house. We have the opportunity to apply ourselves to this. We have access to the Bible in our own language. You can get it for free. And if you're not a reader, you can download an audio version for free as well. And it certainly is the case that we do not want to have a church, this church, where anyone would believe something simply because I say it. I am not the authority in this place. I am not Here's the authority. Accept nothing else. Accept nothing else. This is the very Word of God. This is where God speaks to us. And the only reason to accept anything that anyone who stands up here says about God, about the way to be right with God, about the way to live a life that honors God, the only reason to accept it is because you can confirm it from the pages of Scripture. And actually, this is part of what we're trying to do with house groups, to think through the passages of Acts together and to help each other understand them and apply them. It is to search the Scriptures together. But this isn't just something for Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have the great privilege of having access to the ancient documents that testify to who Jesus is and the great privilege of making your own mind up. Because that's exactly what the Bereans did. And that's what I would urge you to do today. Search the Scriptures and see for yourself. I have no desire to create any followers of me. It's a disappointing experience, I assure you. But I do desire you to search the Scriptures that you might follow Jesus. It's not in my interest or anyone's interest here for us to pressure people into that, to, to, to brainwash people into that. Those are fruitless things. But to say, here's the evidence. Here are the ancient documents you can read for yourself. Search and see if these things are so. And if you're here today, you don't own a Bible, we will gladly give you one. And if you don't have someone to read the Bible with, And there's a lot of people here who would be very happy to do that with you as well. Too many people, we live in an age where too many are content to reject things without searching, to settle for a caricature of something and reject it out of hand. But friends, the stakes are far too high to settle for that. This is the sort of thing that warrants some time. Because if God exists and we are not right with Him, and we can be right with Him, then that's something we need to find out. Read this message about Jesus and see. 
And this is what the mission of the church aims at. There's a lot of good stuff that we can do as a church. There are lots of social projects, lots of positive contributions to the life of our communities that we can be part of and that we should be part of. But that's not the ultimate mission of the church. The mission of the church is to teach the message of the Bible about Jesus, the rescuer who suffered and died and rose again to save sinners like you and me. Now, on a good day, we like to think of human beings as basically rational, um, but we're not really. We like to think that we can hear someone's opinion and that we can calmly process it and decide to agree with it or disagree with it on the basis of the facts. And if someone else sees things differently, well, that's up to them. You know, we like to think that that's the world we can live in. And it might be the case if we're debating things like, what's the best flavor of crisps? Um, Is homeschooling better than state schooling? Though people do get head up about that, admittedly. Um, But it is almost never like that when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not one of those things where everybody is happy to say, well, hey, let's just live and let live. And we see that here in this passage, don't we? The church's mission is proclaiming the Bible's message. But we see also here to proclaim Jesus is to be hated. To proclaim Jesus is to be hated. This is an unmissable mark of the mission. I mean, we said that this passage gives us realistic expectations. And here you go. Some of the Jews in Thessalonica, driven by jealousy, they're ready to... I mean, it seems like they're ready to set the city on fire because they oppose the message of Jesus Christ. They have the place in utter turmoil. And just think, if they were so convinced of the wrongness of Paul and his friends, then they could have debated them, couldn't they? They could have done what Paul was trying to do. They could have uh, tried to prove from the Scriptures that Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. They could have tried to persuade the ruler of the synagogue not to allow them to teach there anymore. But here's the thing with the kind of hatred that the message about Jesus brings. Silence would never be enough for them because they want to destroy these messengers. They want to destroy them. We are to see, I think, throughout the book of Acts, similarities with how Jesus was treated and how his followers are treated. His death was plotted by similarly jealous men. Such was their hatred of Jesus that they were willing to ignore all of their standing rules about what is just and is fair, about what makes for a fair trial. And they were willing to abandon all of that because the most important thing was to get rid of Jesus. And isn't that exactly what goes on here? These Jews, they stir up Um, wicked men of the rabble, verse 5, which is a strange phrase. Men who were looking for trouble. People whom ordinarily these Jews would have had nothing to do with, who they would have denounced as sinners. But now, because for them the ends justify the means, they'll use these sinners to form a mob and hopefully drag the missionaries out before the city authorities and before the mob. 
Now, Paul and his friends, they're not home when they come calling. So their host, Jason, and some other believers are dragged out before the crowd. It's a threatening scene, isn't it? And those who hate Paul's message, they're not afraid to make false accusations either. Because, of course, the aim is at any cost to get rid of them. And so, first of all, verse 6, they're accused of coming to disrupt the city. Uh, They say they have turned the world upside down and they've come here also. And the sense of that being, you know, they've caused turmoil everywhere they've been and they're here to do the same thing amongst us. The second and more dangerous accusation in verse 7 is the accusation of treason against Caesar. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king. Now, of course, they are saying that there's another king, but they're not trying to depose King Caesar, which is what's implied behind their charge. These accusations, they trouble the authorities. They don't want to upset Rome. And we can only imagine what would have happened had they actually got a hold of the missionaries that day. Unable to get to them, they forced Jason to put down a deposit of money as a guarantee that there will be no more trouble. And in effect, that shuts down the mission in Thessalonica. But just think about the the passion that lies behind this hatred Because even when the missionaries had moved on to Berea, some 40 miles or so away, these same jealous Jews make the trip on foot. I mean, it's not like they could say, not like they could car share. They had to walk there to get there. And they do the same thing all over again. You see that in verse 13? Agitating, stirring up the crowds. All of this to shut down the mission wherever it is. God's messengers cannot get away from it because to proclaim Jesus is to be hated. During the recent World Cup in Qatar, there was much made of the host nation's human rights records, their treatment of homosexuals, their treatment of migrant workers, and, and all of that criticism is fair enough. But I heard next to nothing about their persecution of Christians. Nobody seemed to be bothered that a country that persecutes Christians could hold the World Cup. A Qatari who converts from Islam to Christianity suffers a loss of status that affects their rights to own property and even affects their rights to have custody of their children. Christians from a Muslim background are not permitted to marry non-Muslims. The authorities there have refused to allow house churches to reopen post-pandemic. And all the reports indicate that violence towards Christians in that country are on the increase. Why was that not worth talking about? Christianity is, in fact, the most persecuted religion in the world. It was estimated in 2021 that more than 5,500 Christians were murdered. More than 6,000 were imprisoned for no other reason than because they are followers of Jesus Christ. And that today, more than 350 million Christians live in countries where they face significant persecution. 
This is not a world priority. It never appears on our news bulletins. And anytime reports do surface, they remain vague. Christians now become religious minorities. You see, what we're reading in Acts 17 is not mere history. This is contemporary. To proclaim Jesus often means being hated. This is why John, in his first letter, he cautions Christians. He says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Wow, what a message that is to hear, isn't it? Do not be surprised if the world hates you. And I want to say to you today here, Christian, while it's unlikely that anyone here has experienced threats of violence or arrest, this pattern remains even for us. Anytime, anytime that you have been excluded, anytime that you've been falsely accused, falsely characterized, anytime that you've lost a friendship for no other reason than because you spoke about Jesus or because they found out the church you attend, then you are experiencing what generations of Christians have experienced all the way back to Acts 17 and even before. And it hurts, doesn't it? And it is frustrating. And it makes you want to hide your faith away. And in fact, sometimes we're tempted to think that if we could just, if we could just articulate things the right way, if we could just say our message in the right way, no one would be upset with us. But a message that tells you you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and that the only way to find that forgiveness is in Jesus Christ. A message that says that your sins are so odious before God that it took his own bloody crucifixion to save us. People will hate that message, however eloquently it's put, and they will hate the messenger who brings it. But here's the remarkable thing, because the pattern of gospel ministry is not preach, suffer, shut up. It is preach, suffer, repeat. How is it that the missionaries in Acts are undeterred? I mean, this book of Acts is one long story where you could just trace this out, preach, suffer, repeat, all the way from start to finish. How do they keep going? How do we keep going? Well, it's because we've not really spoken about the other response that the mission finds. You see this in verse 4. For Thessalonica, verse 12, for Berea, the same sort of thing is described there. Some were persuaded and followed. A great many devout Greeks, some leading women, many in Berea believed with Greek women of high standing and men too coming to faith. It is the thrill of this that must surely have outweighed the threats, the false accusations, no doubt the sleepless nights. This part of the book of Acts is especially interesting, I think, because elsewhere in the New Testament, we have the record of what was going on in the Apostle Paul's head when all this was going on. Because having fled Thessalonica, he wrote a letter back to this new church explaining his hasty departure. 
He tells them that he had tried to go back, but it just wasn't possible. And he says that he was beside himself with worry because he couldn't find any way to get news of how these young Christians were getting on. Had they given up on the faith? Were they furious at them for leaving? He was beside himself. And he said, and that's why we just had to send Timothy back to find out what was going on. Now, listen to what he does. This is, this is part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. This was it. This was the whole ball game for Paul. He could see that even though on the face of it, opposition in Thessalonica had shut down that mission, that there was in fact a mission going on that no man could shut down. Because this is God's mission, God's unstoppable mission. Nothing brought joy quite like seeing people trust in Jesus Christ and stand firm in the faith. And there's only one way to know that joy, only one way, and it's to be engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Sure, you could minimize the hatred by not getting involved, but you'll never know this joy of seeing people one for Jesus Christ. The only way is to be engaged in the mission, to tell others about him. That's the mission. We may well face a deep-seated hatred, but praise God there are some. Indeed, we pray that there would be many who come to know Jesus. And the joy of that happening surpasses all because it's there that God is glorified and Christ's church is built. Bankery Christian Fellowship, the same thing comes to us today. It's a call to preach, to suffer, to repeat until we all rest in glory. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, be our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.